0: welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo West Vic PHN Hub. Series 7, session 10 and welcome back. This session is titled 2021 Pandemic Response Echo Network Wrap Up. Looking back and thinking forward and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. Uh, We recognize their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that first Nations people hold in our communities. We pay our respects to both Elders past and present and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. And we support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations and we'll work together on closing the gap. And certainly we're going to bring that forward with some spirit into 2022. So it's lovely to see you all this morning. Thank you along for coming along to our last uh, Pandemic Response Echo Network gathering for 2021. Now, when we ran these first ran these sessions, in March of 2020, I really didn't anticipate that we'd be gathering for two years, running over 60 sessions, and nor that we'd have quite so much to talk about. Um, But there you have it, pandemics, eh? Well, this time last year, when we signed off, I remember there was that possible third wave hovering over us, a bit like a dark cloud, and many said, don't mention third wave, well, this year we depart with the thought of variance on our minds. And so our seemingly constant companion, uncertainty, continues to travel alongside us from 21 into 22. But I'd like to kick off this morning with some positives. This year, as a collective, we've ad- adapted to big changes and we've made some massive gains. We've achieved over 95% vaccination in each LGA across our region. We've lived through lockdown seven or was it eight, eight lockdowns, we've seen the establishment of two new public health units in regional Victoria in our region. Um, We've witnessed the development of and been involved in the development of COVID care pathways within our health services and regions. We've adapted our practices to this airborne hazard and deciphered multiple iterations of vaccine eligibility from Commonwealth and risk matrices from the state. And we're all hopefully a little better prepared to manage Uh, COVID in primary care when the time eventually comes and even though I imagine we're all pretty happy to down tools for a bit I think it's fair to say that we are gradually learning to live with this virus. I know that I speak on behalf of the ECHO team and uh, the West Vic PHN team when I say that we will miss this clever and dynamic community over the coming months, but we're all really happy that we'll be taking a break over summer and we hope you enjoy your Thursday morning lions, your newspapers and coffees and early walks in peace too. You can go back and listen to podcasts and webinars or catch up on missed content if you're having some echo withdrawals, but I suspect you'll all be enjoying a really well-deserved break. This morning, in addition to our usual uh, and awesome updates from our local team, I'm delighted to announce that we'll be joined by Associate Professor Deborah Friedman, our Deputy Chief Health Officer and ECHO Regular in 2020. And I'll be asking her the following questions. What have we collectively achieved in public health and as a health system in 2021? What have we learned about this novel virus that we can take forward so it feels a little less novel and a little more predictable in 2022? How might we think about the coronavirus as a hazard and a risk in the year to come and in the local and global context? And Also, what are her hot tips for what to pack in our holiday doctor's bags and suitcases for this hot back summer in regional Victoria? So start thinking of the questions you'd like to ask uh, Deb as well because we're going to have a good half hour Q&A in our second half um, and you could be putting them into the chats. Probably if um, if you've got them for Deb, uh, hold them until about 8, um, but please do and let's bring everyone on the mic. Actually, let's bring everyone on camera as well this morning. Now, I know you do love your lions and your showers and you're getting kids ready in the background, but if you are... <laughs> able to then please do bring yourself on camera we'd love to see your faces for this final session yes thank you all right so i'm becca forrester gp i'll be facilitating the meeting today alongside fee and Gemma, linda and i can see katrina's here this morning too and the rest of the west Vic exec team that come along each week thank you to them welcome to rowena our ceo who's here this morning um and welcome to all our participants from zooming in or across the west Vic regions do tell us something this morning when you introduce yourself in the chat about what's on your christmas list or perhaps your New Year's resolutions. Um, or maybe, you know, we're, something about uh, whether you've been naughty or nice this year, I guess. Let's do a roundup. Um, so welcome. And I'd like to welcome our panel now this morning. So as always and ever, we've got Linda Govan, Regional Senior Manager, Westwick PHN, bringing us a PHN update. And Dr. Kate Graham, um, Clinical uh, GP, Clinical Editor of Health Pathways and Clinical COVID Advisor for the Westwick PHN. And as you know, she's she has been lending us her hat as medical lead uh, with the Victorian Department of Health, which has been just so valuable and thank you Kate for um, providing us that really high level insights um, in the last uh, you know months or so that you've been in that role so that we know what's happening um, in our systems across the state. Um, Kate will bring us those public health and vaccinations COVID care update and to do, do please ply in any questions that you have about those risk matrices and new language around contacts um, this is your last chance to kind of ask those questions of Kate this morning for another month or so now. And then as mentioned, we've got Associate Professor Deborah Friedman, Deputy Cho coming along to um, speak to us about where we're up to. Um, Now, is there a few, any other things for me to talk about, Gemma, or am I handing over? Oh, thank you. Please do take the time. And thank you so much to everyone who evaluated last week. This is an end of series evaluation. So I would love to, uh, we'd love to get as many responses as possible. As mentioned, we're uh, presenting at the Safer Care Vic conference next year. And we'd love to kind of get a sense of what the impact or outcomes of ECHO are. So this is really valuable for us. I guess it really helps us understand whether we are making a difference, but this series has uh, impacted and had outcomes that are Um, You know, important. Um, So, we'd really value your time in um, completing this survey. So, either have a quick go at it now or or save it for later. We'll also send it out in the email if you don't get a chance this morning, but we really appreciate it. and uh, I think going forward into next year, we don't have anything to announce at this point in time, um, but we'd love to hear from you. Do please stay in touch and um, the team will pop our ECHO or email. I think it's at the end of the slides as well. Um, you know, if you start to get cases, we want to hear about it so we can be driven a little bit by your demand as to what you want. Um, so please do reach out. Um, we, we will be responsive as, as hopefully we have always been. Um, is there anything else there, Gemma, or am I handing over? I think that's probably it from me. Great. Thank you. I'll hand over to you, Linda. Cheers. Thanks, Bianca.
1: Good morning, everyone. As Bianca noted, we have had a really big year and we have hit the over 95% in all of our sub-regions across the the PHN, which is fantastic. I'll just pop down in the corner there. It's it's an absolute team effort in conjunction with all of the state hubs. We've had 167 general practices, um, community vaccination centres, which are our GPRCs, which are five in our region, and at shows, 167 and 84 pharmacies involved in the vaccine rollout over the last many months and when we receive new practices coming on board, I think we're up to week 45 now, so it's just been such a mammoth effort. So again, congratulations to everybody in the room here today. Our next slide, thanks, Gemma. Um, And of course, the effort doesn't stop there. So as we move into a living with COVID space, the Commonwealth Government have got a number of um, activities um, on our PHN plate. And so one of them is around commissioning um, clinical providers to undertake home visits for people living with COVID. This isn't to replace remote monitoring. This is really to support people at home and to avert escalation into hospitals if, if possible. So we've got an EOI coming out. It's really, well, it's an expression of interest. We wanna hear what your thoughts are around this and whether you would be interested in taking up the offer, but um, it's looking to um, commission, whether it's medical deputizing services, nurse practitioners, general practice practitioners on the practice, nurses to complete home visits, when a GP may not have capacity or the person needs to see, um, be seen after hours. Um, as I've got the scope there, it is around um, COVID symptoms, but it's also more than that. It's whether, whether there, there are other issues that need to be seen um, and that could be addressed in a home visit. So you'll find that in your inbox, hopefully by the end of the week that'll come out um, we haven't got a model designed yet we haven't got a financial model designed or put together yet either so some work to do there but we do want to hear from you and, and if that's something that's interesting to you or not we, we really do want to know that. And this is being commissioned right across Australia through all of the PHNs so a big piece of work coming there. Next slide, thanks. Um, just a general update. We've had, the for the aged care, we've had uh, 56 um, booster visits um, to the private aged cares in our region to date. Um, Oh, actually, yeah, since the the 8th of November, we've got a further eight booked in and three more sites um, to be done in January. Aspen will take a pause into into January. Uh, Grampians PHU will um, provide, have been providing, been really great in going into aged care as well to um, just to. I guess, um, work with Aspen and, and just to speed up the process as well. Also, if there's been any outbreaks, there have been in, in, the, in there as well as has So that's been moving along really well. In regards to our vulnerable population funding that we've had, there's been over 200 vaccinations given to date, and that's um, been for people with, whether it's with a disability, Um, frail, unable to leave home, and some aged care work as well. We're hoping that funding is extended into 2022. We haven't um, got confirmation of that yet. But, again, that's been a really valuable addition to our program. And, again, it works in conjunction with all of the work that the state hubs have been doing as well. Um, In regards to PPE, if you urgently need uh, stock, just do contact us. There will be somebody uh, monitoring that inbox. Um, But otherwise, we won't be providing any more deliveries until early next year unless there's an outbreak and then we'll um, step up and, and see what needs to be done there. So the operational lowdown is we expect to hear that ordering for vaccinations will open by the end of this week but we haven't heard that yet so that is pending. There isn't an EOI process for, for joining the paediatric booster rollout so you will be able to just step into that space as soon as it's announced um, and also just uh, out of I noted this yesterday, but Moderna has also got an application in to be involved um, for children aged 6 to 11. So that's that's an interesting um, addition to the um, vaccine rollout as well. Um, link to Minister Hunt's um, statement there, just for a bit more context around that. So that's it. Um, in regards to general ordering, if you're ordering this week, it won't be delivered until 7th of January, but if it's urgent, you can contact the VOC directly and they'll get that to you before um, just before Christmas. Um, and there'll be no orders delivered in the week ending the 31st of December. All of this information was in the provider bulletin that came out about midweek as well this week. So, Last slide. Yeah, just to stay connected in regards to what's happening. Um, our office will be closed from the 24th of December at midday and reopening on Tuesday, the 4th of, 4th of January. Again, we um, we will have some monitoring of emails if definitely if you need PPE and if there's anything else happening. Um, just a reminder, links to health pathways there, the password and uh, log on if you need that. Uh, keep an eye on our covid 19 Positive Care Pathway webpage as well um, for any updates, information there. And we will have links to all of our ECHO sessions as Bianca knows as well, if you do want to refresh on anything during your break.
0: And I think that's it.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Is that all?
0: That's Thanks. it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Over to you, Kate.
2: Okay. So in terms of updates, this week hasn't had too much on um, from a vaccine and um, sort of general point of view, apart from the announcement that vaccines have been sort of um, approved for the TG- by the TGA for Pfizer for the five to 11 year olds, which I'll get onto that. I think there's another slide coming up with that. Um, and the other sort of key point um, Okay. Well, yep. Fantastic. Thanks, Gemma. Um, So, with the five to 12-year-olds, we are waiting on the ATAGI guidance. Um, Usually, with any decision that's TGA approved, the ATAGI team will then provide the background, um, any prioritisation, and then that's sort of um, presented to the government um, for inclusion in the rollout. Previously, there have been priority groups that have been targeted um, in each cohort first. I think with vaccine availability, um, it will depend on how much stock they're anticipating with the delivery, because we are getting a different preparation due to different vial size and dosing. So, depending on the amounts that we're getting of this early, um, there may be differences in prioritisation, or we may just be... Full rollout for everyone um, in this age group to start with, because as we've seen over the past couple of months, the unvaccinated children are providing the main source of household infections um, sort of statewide. Um, So it's going to be really important to vaccinate them. I think keeping in mind the disability population group within this 5 to 12-year-old cohort um, as a health risk for them as well as that population risk overall. Um, So it's not going to be any different um, in terms of the two doses uh, for this age group. Three weeks apart, um, there may be some guidance in terms of sort of those differences in state, federal guidance that we've seen with some of the other rollouts initially, um, depending again on sort of accessibility um, because we just wanna get vaccinations into as many kids as quickly as possible, um, similar to sort of our general rollout. So there may be some different dose spacing, and that's the kind of guidance that we're waiting for from ATAGI. Um, So there will be different vial sizes, uh, vial caps and um, packaging. And this is really to avoid any mixing up of doses because a lower dose is really important in this age group. Um, And so what we don't want is people using their standard doses of Pfizer, um, using up any expiring doses on kids, trying to figure out what the lower dose is and getting them out of their standard um, Pfizer that they have in stock. That is not TGA approved. The only um, formulation that is going to be TGA approved are these um, orange capped vials, And there will be sort of likely to be updates for training um, within the training modules just to cover differences in preparation, um, all those kinds of things. So keep an eye out for them. Health pathways will be updated as soon as guidance is released, and we're just waiting on that. So stay tuned. Um, What we are waiting on as well is the Moderna information. So that's just something to keep in mind and particularly sort of when you're doing your age checks, if you do have Moderna um, in practice, or if you are sort of in that five to six year old age group, um, if it is approved, just sort of thinking about practice protocols for making sure that you're not giving five year olds Moderna when they're only approved for six and above. So I think there was a question back there, sorry, Gemma, just on that last slide, Um, with the vaccination. I think it was just about consent forms for the third vaccination. Um, I think I haven't heard anything in the pipeline, um, but it would be great um, to be able to feed that back, and we may be able to feed that back through to the um, vaccination team's Um, I think that that would be quite useful. And I think particularly for children, um, having sort of something that is specific for children, I know that the state vaccination hubs are looking at ways to make their vaccination clinics more child friendly, um, recognising that kids and vaccinations um, are quite different in this age group. Um, so there are lots of other things to consider as well, but we will see if we can feedback that um, consent form for the third vaccinations. And that's just one other thing on the vaccinations to keep thinking about, uh, which is that point that the booster doses are all amping up at the same time as kids are coming aboard. So we're getting to that
0: six-month point for um, the 40-year-olds and over in January too. So, Kate, from Deb, yep. just about what's advice for children who are going to be turning 12 in the next three months, should they get the paediatric dose, wait for the adult doses? I know uh, this is a tricky one. Yeah, yep. It is a tricky one. Um, and I think that probably,
2: um, I think you just vaccinate with whatever you can get into quickly at the moment and then think about Um, potentially if you need boosters later. I know that's like when you're looking at the immunity that's given in this sort of five to 11-year-olds, they've looked at the immunity in the 11-year-old group as being good with this lower dose. So I think I wouldn't have any hesitation. I've got an 11-year-old who's turning 12 who will be in that sort of um, group where he'll only be a couple of months off turning 12. And I think I'm going to be happy to give him the lower dose just to get something into him quickly. Thank you. So I'll just go back to those first slides again. Um, So we had a few sort of scenarios that are some of the trickier ones that keep popping up, um, just to sort of flag some of those differences in household contact scenarios, social contact scenarios, all the messy things that happen when you're trying to figure out who's connected to who, um, and how you then sort of stratify them out, and what is a household? What's an unvaccinated household? So, if you've got your index case, who is a child who is under the age of vaccination, as a twelve-year-old at present, um, they're and they're an unvaccinated case. If everyone over twelve in the household is vaccinated you're considered as a vaccinated household. So in household one, the two to 10 year olds unvaccinated, but that doesn't matter because they're not currently eligible. Um, But the three to 13 year old has had two vaccinations. So I'm assuming that they're probably that 12 to 13 year old age group, which is fantastic. And mum and dad are um, double vaccinated. So in that household, Um, those household contacts are only going to have to quarantine for that seven-day period. Um, In household two, however, the unvaccinated dad means that all these other people who have had two vaccinations, um, everyone gets put on their 14-day
0: Path.
2: Oh. I mean, no, not everyone gets put on the 14 day path. Sorry, yeah. If I, yeah, if I made,
0: instead I'd, yeah. if I'd made that 13 year old, sorry, child two, 13 years, if I'd child made two. them unvaccinated, if I'd made that kid an unvaccinated child. So their child two in which household? Sorry, in household two, if child two, who's 13, if they were unvaccinated because dad's unvaccinated as well, does child two go in for 14 days? So if child two was,
2: if child two was younger than twelve, um, they would then be fourteen days. If, sorry, yeah, yeah. If the dad was unvaccinated, yeah.
0: So everyone, I'm sorry if that was clear as yeah, much. Sorry, <laughs> um, sorry. If I made so, child two, 12 years old and unvaccinated, they would have to go into fourteen day quarantine. Yeah. So the children, so
2: unvaccinated children. Um, who aren't eligible yet for vaccination are basically put on the same household requirements as the least vaccinated uh, person who's eligible for vaccination in the household. So the the dad who's unvaccinated then on that 14-day pathway would put the child... Um, who is under the age of vaccination at a 14-day pathway?
0: Yeah, and then the key with this scenario was then the end of rolling lockdowns. And I know we've you've described, described this, Kate, again. But if we could just um, highlight, say, in yeah, household so, one, yeah. So in um, so I had
2: a scenario that I was thinking about recently. So we've got so if you've got a child who child one is positive um, and Mum and dad, other children are on day six. Um, On day six testing, child two tests positive. On day seven, mum, dad, child three, if they've tested negative on their day six testing, they're able to be released from quarantine. Um, They don't have to then reset their household
0: um, timing from that
2: time point.
0: Yeah and I think the thing that we, you know I think it was Alison Miller's scenario brought out was that we saw families were trying to kind of um, say separated and we thought oh well hang on a second like what's the likelihood that they've actually managed to prevent transmission but then it comes now from that second but you know what yeah. look I think overall it's that sort of general public health point of view versus the
2: individual household situation and it's It's trying to ensure that we're putting the least restrictive measures on households overall. Um, In some situations, we know that, you know, child one and the dad may not have as much interaction as child two and the dad or something like that. So you may then have an increased risk of child two infecting the dad But um, I think in any of these scenarios, if you're being released from quarantine and you still have somebody positive in the household that sort of need to monitor and sort of keep monitoring for symptoms during that period, the same way that you want anyone in the community to monitor for symptoms, um, still exists, get tested again, um, but with that lower threshold for sort of even the most mild of vague symptoms, um, I think that you would um, be encouraging any families who were sort of on that rolling quarantine pathway, if they had any questions about anything that they were feeling at that point in time,
0: you'd want them to...
2: Be um, get
0: tested. So I guess it puts us in that position where it's like there's those public health orders, but then it's also using our common sense around yeah, mitigating, yep. risk mitigation, providing yep, that advice. Absolutely. right. Okay, and thanks. I think
2: I just saw a case pop up. So in child two, test positive at day six. So if child two tests positive at day six, they, no, they, have 10 days themselves. So because they, if they test positive at day six, that is their day um, zero is their first day of testing positive. Um, So they have to stay at home, but the parents can then go out and get food for them, um, be out doing things. So it becomes a much easier way to sort of um, have
0: a child in isolation than when the whole family is quarantined along with the child. So the child moves from quarantine into isolation, so they're no longer a contact, they become yep. a case. A case, and they, and they a, still a have. end up 10 days. Yep. yep.
2: So with Paul's question, if the index case is unwell at day 10, um, currently with community cases um, without any sort of significant features of... So that a severe illness requiring hospitalisation. If you're not somebody in a residential care setting, if you're not immunocompromised, um, we would, from a Department of Health, there's automatic clearance at day ten, um, regardless of symptoms. So, recognising that some symptoms will be ongoing, the infectious period is considered to end at day 10, unless any of those um, sort of severe illness risk factors exist. And some of that's recognizing that community cases fit into that mild um, category of illness rather than the moderate to severe that would be hospitalized or have additional risk factors. So I don't think there were any other consent things there uh, for this one. We'll just move on to the next scenario quickly because we are getting close to time, I think. Um, so, social contacts is another tricky thing. And as we have realised, probably everyone has in the past couple of weeks, there are so many social things that are being crammed into the time leading up to Christmas. And one of the key things with household-like contacts is that contact greater than four hours in a household-like setting, um, puts you into household-like contact rather than social contact scenario. So social contact scenario is quite lenient in terms of your restrictions for quarantine, um, meaning that you should go and get your PCR. um, And then if that's negative, you're allowed to go and roam free. Um, And that doesn't matter if you are vaccinated or unvaccinated. um, So if you're less than the four hours in a social contact setting, um, you don't have any restrictions other than that. And if you don't believe that you actually are a social contact and you've been notified that you're a social contact, there's actually no mandate over um, having to test. So what is the difference in this one is anyone who's had contact over four hours in a household-like setting, so if you've been in someone's house um, at a party for more than four hours, you would then fall into the household um, close contact category or household contact category, and you are going to be put onto either the seven or 14-day pathway depending on whether you are vaccinated or unvaccinated. So I think you want to pick your party locations and companions carefully, Um, make sure that you are vaccinated and um, maybe don't go to parties for more than three hours and 58 minutes. Um, So and then the last one that just I think that this one is a little bit, um, this sort of fits in, I was having a look at the matrix again, which is my favorite place to look in the universe (laughs) because it's, there are a couple of things that do fall a little bit between the scenarios of that yellow zone and the red zone. Um, index case uh, tends GP clinic on day one, vaccinated, asymptomatic, hopefully they're wearing a mask, because um, that will make a difference. They're having some cryotherapy for lesions on the scalp. Um, GP is wearing surgical mask only, which is fine. Um, They're going to, it depends on the length of time that you're actually within that sort of close contact, less than 1.5 metres. It also depends on whether they're wearing a mask. But really, it's just having a look through the matrix, figuring out what time you're there, whether they're wearing a mask, you're wearing a mask, figuring out where you fit on that matrix if you're in the yellow zone, red zone. In terms of whether you have the PCR and then your sort of RAT testing daily to come back, or the PCR and consider RAT testing, um, or consider PCR at forty-eight hours and RAT testing. So the yellow zone is more sort of practice practice determined, um, whereas the red zone is more what we would consider to be. Um, advised. Um, And look, I think that from a safety perspective, if you're in close contact with somebody at that kind of level for something like that, um, a PCR and rat testing on the days that you return, plus wearing your N95 on the days back at work, not sharing shared spaces, not having lunch with your colleagues on those days, um, but you're free in the community otherwise um, is a reasonable approach. So that's probably all from me because we're past eight.
0: Thank you, Kate. Thank you very much. And um, welcome, Deb Friedman. Um, to those of uh, our crew who uh, were here in 2020, it's lovely to see you again. And we're really uh, so thrilled that um, to see you and to see where you're at. To those of you who don't know Deb Friedman, Associate Professor Deb Friedman is the Deputy Chief Health Officer of um, in Victoria. And we're delighted to have her join us this morning uh, to talk a little bit about really where we're at um, and what we've kind of seen a bit of a reframe and a review of the year that's been and uh, where we're heading in 2022. Um, So thank you so much for joining us Deb and uh, over to you. Hi Bianca, hi
3: everyone, nice to see you all. Um, So it's December of 2021, who could have believed that? So when we got to about September onwards this year we had a clear roadmap of where things were heading in Victoria and this was heavily um, connected to vaccination targets and as we moved through 70%, 80% and then we moved towards 90% fully vaccinated, there'd been significant changes in relaxation of measures along that time. Along that time, the sort of metrics that we've been watching have been the REF, so the R0 or the effective reproductive number. We know more than one, not good, less than one, very good. And we know that even now we're sitting above one. We've looked at vaccination rates and we know that we're sitting at 94% with the first dose and Largely speaking, there's what we would expect is that we'll get up to second dose 94% because the majority of people who've had the first dose will have the second, even if there's a bit of a delay. So we probably will reach about 94% for those above the age of 12. The metrics that we know are really important are the number of patients in hospital. And we know that 2,500 would be the absolute maximum that the state could live with. And we also look at the number of patients in ICU where 600 is really the, the, the end of the range of what the system could cope with. And we know that there's even been significant pressure below that level. But right now, I think today we've got 315 people in hospital which is not unreasonable, and, you know, about 27 people um, who are active COVID cases on ventilators. So this is the epidemic curve, and look, I think the thing to note is it's not been the bell curve that everyone necessarily would have hoped for, and a reason for that is that we've loosened restrictions in the setting of higher vaccination rates, but when we loosened restrictions, we did so at very high case numbers, which if you look at overseas experience, would not have been um, necessarily the optimal time to loosen restrictions. So you can see that our we we have not been below a thousand cases as a sort of average number since about September the 28th. That's been over two months, so you can see that that's been reasonably, although we had our peak over 2,000 cases, which was reasonably short-lived, we've been bobbing around for some time now between 1,000 and 1,200 cases. The other thing that we've seen, and this started in October because we knew that returning children back to educational settings was important, we assumed that what would happen is that we were going to see a large number of cases, and it was a whole lot worse than what we prepared people for. There've been significant numbers of outbreaks in early learning centres and in schools and everybody's aware of that. And it's happened in all areas of Victoria, including areas that have never seen cases of COVID before. Small towns um, like Nil and Stall and um, areas close up to the border that have never had cases of COVID before. Next slide, please. And so we look at modelling, that's kind of where we've been before and where we're going is often heavily tied to what the modelling tells us. And the modelling so far has been reasonably accurate. I just draw your attention here to what modelling says related to different things that we're going to be doing. And if you look at the different colours on the graph, you can see that when large events are held, when people stop working from home, when pubs and bars are open, and cafes and restaurants are open, all of those lead to an increase in cases. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. And this is what the modelling suggested before. Next slide, please. Um, This shows us this was prepared yesterday. So this is a seven day case average showing And there's different regions. So on the left, it's metro, and on the right, it's regional. But you can basically see in no area are cases decreasing. I think that's the major takeaway point from this. So whether you look at the northeast, which is that red bar in that metro, the northeast includes places like Hume, and it's had high case numbers throughout, and it still continues to slightly increase. We've also seen, I guess, a slight increase in the southeast and then you know, it sort of varies in the west, it's semi-stable. Um, in, in regional areas, um, while there's a little bit of stability in Orbury-Wodonga after their previous outbreak, most of them have had a lot of movement around and most of them have sort of been in the increasing direction and then overarching all of that we've looked at the age groups and what the age groups tell us and what you can see here the green which is the bottom bit here which is which would incorporate all children that go to early learning and school age children since october we've seen an increase in cases represented among children and they have now been Although children of that age group are only about 10 to 12% of the population, they make up about 30% of cases, so they're disproportionately represented among cases. But we can also see that young people who are socially active um, in that middle band also make up a large number of cases. Um, the other thing that modelling has shown us is what we might expect in December, January. And you can see that whether you look at new cases diagnosed per day, ICU demand or hospitalisation, there's the anticipation of an increase through December into January. And as you'd all be aware of before, after you start seeing an increase in cases that's followed in the next couple of weeks, by an increase in hospitalisation and an increase in ICU demand. And that hospitalisation demand actually remains sustained for, you know, months after that peak. So that's what's anticipated to happen still. They are repeating the modelling and they continue to all the time. Um, But this is sort of what's been projected for some time. So you've heard from Kate Graham about this is just one of the matrices about primary care. And I know Kate's walked you through it. So I might slip through to two slides forward, please. Thank you. So it, it brings into question, this is the way that, you know, people are still needing to practice now. Obviously, people who come in who have very typical symptoms of COVID, the recommendation has been and would continue to be that they need to have a COVID test. Um, and, you know, whether or not they can be seen at your practice is, I, I think, really a separate question, but they absolutely need to be tested. And we know that, Many general practices had, and we'd certainly seen this throughout the recent wave that we've had, have seen patients during their infectious period and not thought of COVID. Um, Next slide, please. And then I think some of the scenarios that have baffled people were people who presented with headache to their GP, but no symptoms of fever and no respiratory symptoms or people that presented with purely gastrointestinal symptoms. And I guess, you know, what we're learning is you need to suspect COVID in all these scenarios and test first. Um, next slide, please. So I guess just when we get used to what was the new normal, we have a new variant and we have moved through Alpha, Beta, etc., Delta, and now um, Omicron. So as of a few days ago, there were over 900 cases of Omicron, and it's been confirmed in over 45 countries. So we know about Southern Africa. We heard about that. There's lots of other countries in Africa, including, you know, way up north, including Egypt. There's multiple European countries, and the UK today has announced increased restrictions in place and mask wearing and stuff like that. And that's, once again, that ongoing theme of loosening restrictions, bringing restrictions back. Um, We've seen cases in... The US, Canada, India, and then some other parts of the Indian subcontinent and Asia. Um, What we need to know is about the severity of illness and about vaccine efficacy. It already looks like it's more transmissible. um, And that's sort of just based on very early information at hand. Um, There was a question that was put in the chat before about why did New South Wales settle um, so I just wanted to, the basic answer is that at the time that New South Wales opened up at their sort of, I think it was perhaps at the 80% fully vaccinated, I can't recall, actually it might have been 70, when they did um, open and loosen restrictions, they had significantly low, lower cases than Victoria um, and I think that that's one of the most important things. The other thing is that fundamentally they had a, a different way of controlling it, and I think people were highly critical of their sort of um, differential lockdown for different LGAs. But it appeared to have been reasonably effective for the western and the southwestern parts of um, of Sydney. So where are we heading? Um, I guess. We've, had, we've gone from the sort of frightening time of 2020 with no vaccination to more than 90% of people fully vaccinated. We have had that chasing of COVID zero and reactive lockdowns to more of a national planning and a roadmap to opening up and the idea of living safely with COVID. I think, of course, one of the things as health professionals, what we recognise is that that, that that is certainly what we would all love. It remains to be seen how much that, that you know, how much the idea of never, ever locking down again um, is, is entirely realistic. And while it might be um, certainly optimal for businesses and everybody's well-being, um, what we've seen internationally and looking in the Northern Hemisphere is that, there's still a lot that we don't know what we don't know how to anticipate what's going to happen next. And I think that's one thing that we have learnt is that we're not really good at predicting what's going to happen next. We've had a lot of government-directed rules and restrictions, and we're moving things back to individual responsibility. And obviously, from the emergency management powers resting with the chief health officer, we've now got pandemic um, legislation that will begin on December 15th, meaning that the power shifts in terms of making decisions related to pandemics, um, and that shifts to um, the Premier. And then empowering people um, and public health education is where we're heading as well. Next slide, please. So part of this sort of direction that we're heading is, is the devolution of Victorian contact tracing. Instead of us knowing everything about, you know, the five people that went to a house party in Richmond, we've kind of not, no longer got that level of visibility. We hope the people at that party know about who was there, but we don't necessarily need to know about it. We need to, with high vaccination rates, focus on areas of greatest impact, and that means households, friends, close contacts, workplaces, schools and early learning centres. Next slide please. And so in doing so and in sort of that social contract that we have with the community means asking Victorians to tell their social contacts. So if they go out for dinner with people or if they have a party and they find out that they're a case, um, we will not be calling up their contacts. That's a sort of I think that's a sort of old-fashioned hierarchical way of doing things. People should be contacting their own social contacts, telling their friends and families that they've tested positive and recommending that they test and stay home. And then people also need to go and tell their workplaces, their schools, their children's early learning centres, and then the responsibility shifts to those workplaces and educational settings to contact people within those settings and ask them to go get tested before returning back. And then the department will retain involvement in outbreaks, especially in high-risk settings. So I guess the other thing that we're doing is COVID-19 vaccine boosters or third doses. What's been shown in some studies internationally is that vaccination Um, leads to really good immunity after two doses, but some of that immunity tends to wane at about six months afterwards. It's hypothesised that that's one of the explanations for higher case numbers in aged care that we've seen throughout the last several months. Um, And so this really is a priority for anybody who's six months or more um, after their second dose. The ATAGI position on this is that beyond five months, if there was sort of sort of um, compelling reasons that you could give that booster dose from five months, and that examples of that would be people who might, for example, be travelling overseas and might not be home to get their third dose, um, especially in the case of people who are at an increased risk of. Um, COVID-19, perhaps due to their occupation, and that could be some specific high-risk settings for nurses and doctors. Um, But we know and certainly we think that where we need to be heading to is to continuing with the boosters over the next several months um, to make sure that we're retaining good immunity. And so that leads us to vaccination of children under 12 to try and complete the circle, and this should start in January We know that while people previously said that children don't get COVID and children don't transmit COVID, we know neither of those to be true. I should have put those into little emojis to see if we could have figured that out earlier but children do get covid and children do spread covid and what we've seen from those outbreaks in schools and early learning is that the child gets infected they bring it into their household the siblings and the parents become infected the siblings take it to another school the parents take it to their workplace and it goes to the grandparents so that's that's the way it works and that's why you could anticipate that it works What we know will happen with vaccinating under 12-year-olds is reducing the total number of COVID-19 infections by nearly two-thirds. It'll reduce hospitalisations by 60%. And this is not hospitalisation of children. This is hospitalisation of all the other people that become infected like their parents. And it will reduce COVID-related deaths by more than 50%. We know that thus far in Australia, we've actually had nearly 1,400 deaths throughout the entire pandemic. That's a large number of deaths. One thing to note, however, is that is significantly fewer deaths than what would have been anticipated based on total number of COVID cases and based on our population. So, it still is overall in terms of mortality in Australia, very much a success story. And so, My last slide about where we're heading is that COVID-19 and severe COVID-19 is a disease of the unvaccinated. Um, We're hoping that that we might approach herd immunity by vaccinating children. So as I said before, under 12 year olds make up 10, about 10, maybe 10 to 12% of the population. It, vaccination at this time won't be mandatory, Paul. We haven't heard that, but anything can change, as you know. Um, it depends whether you know other vaccinations. We've got things like no jab, no play, etc. It's unclear whether or not that might be the case here. But even if we got three quarters of children vaccinated, we might be heading towards herd immunity. Um, we don't know if annual vaccines will be required and whether or not it will be like influenza where you can create new vaccines based on the circulating strains. But what we have heard in that regard from both Moderna and Pfizer is that they are—they both, um, at least when Omicron was first announced, they said that they were 100 days away from developing a vaccine which specifically targeted the omicron variant so if this is the way we're going then that's exactly what vaccine producers are going to do they're going to be able to create vaccines that target new variants um, there was a question in the chat before about dvr so dvr data will continue and people will continue to get pinged unfortunately and it will trigger automated um sms's to possible contacts um, that what we know, we know a little bit more about electronic check-in now than we did before, and we know that some settings are much higher risk than others, so pubs and bars and large gatherings are much more important than going and getting a takeaway coffee or drive-through McDonald's. Um, But in that devolution of contact tracing, we're moving things to the community, knowing that community leaders with local councils can play a very key role in their areas. They can help people to safely isolate or quarantine, but they can also promote vaccination, testing and COVID safe behaviours. And I saw, I kept this on my desk as an example of local councils, here we go. So local council of the surf coast says mask test. And then inside it says, you know, get get vaccinated, vax to the max, this is the sort of stuff that local councils can do and this is an example of what every council I think is probably doing. So I think that that's an example of how the community can really take this on board. And I guess finally what we know is that even in a vaccinated population, and this is pre-herd immunity obviously, but even in a well-vaccinated population, testing Um, remains very important. All of the modelling suggests that without high testing rates, um, things go south very quickly. So high testing rates are important, even in people who are vaccinated, and public health measures, so masks and physical distancing. uh, There was supposed to be an S there. They still apply. They're still important. um, And they'll remain important. And although we've seen, you know, a reduction in mask use recently, I don't know that that's entirely where we're going to land and there might be times where masks will be brought back in certain settings because they remain an incredibly simple um, intervention to reduce transmission and, as you know, in a bi-directional way. Um, I think that's all I had and I'm happy to take a couple of questions, but I do have to fly off in a couple of minutes.
0: Great. Right. So we've got you to like 30? Yep. Beautiful. Okay, thanks, Deb. We've got a pre- planted question. So, crew who I've asked, um, be ready. It's going to be a rapid fire round. Shan couldn't make it, but she's been working with us through the last couple of series around uh, triaging uh, infectious diseases in general practice. What do you see as the model? So, this is from her. What do you see as the likely models going forward for the assessment and management of patients with infectious diseases, including COVID? Are we going to be sending them to the ED? Are there going to be specialised clinics in primary care, like the GP respiratory clinics, or will general practices be re- to set up an area to see patients with infectious diseases in their existing settings.
3: So, Bill had obviously given this a whole lot more thought than I have because all of the things that she proposes seem to be very good options. I think that what we have learnt is that certainly from some practices who've set up a side of their clinic that's, you know, for infectious diseases is probably a very worthwhile model. It works through winter, it works for all respiratory tract infections, including during flu season. So I think the most sensible thing would be having a portion of a practice which is set up to see patients with with acute infections. That's kind of where my sense leads me as to what would be best funded and the things that practices, you know, are going to most easily maintain with their staffing, et cetera. I guess that's another consideration. But I don't think sending people to hospital with illnesses that would otherwise be managed in the community will be where we'll be heading at any point. You know, we should be constantly trying to make sure that the people that are funneled towards hospitals are people that require hospital level care. Thank Next you. question.
0: Rowena. Hey, Deb, congratulations too. Um, uh,
2: Belinda's sort of partly taken my question. I suppose the role of rapid antigen tests for primary care into the future and um, any updates on influenza. I had
1: something come through my email. I'm like, it didn't make a lot of sense around what we're doing with influenza vaccinations
3: now. So, Rowena, um, I guess... With, I might start with flu first, if that's okay. Uh, there hasn't been much flu um, for the last couple of years. We anticipate that probably next year we will see a return of flu. What we know with lockdowns, with mask wearing and with other restrictions, we saw very, very little flu. That, that does teach us a lot about the way that we acted in the past with regard to flu and all the different things that we could do to prevent flu. So what I anticipate is flu vaccination to continue as it always has but we're several months away from needing it for 2022. Um, The first part of your question was about rapid antigen testing so obviously we know that PCR testing is the gold standard. Um, Rapid antigen testing however has the benefit of, of you know, very short wait times, but it has reduced sensitivity and specificity. We know that rapid antigen testing performs best in people who have symptoms. However, the caveat there is that anyone who has symptoms really needs to have that confirmed via PCR. So it's still not the answer. But in a setting where you maybe can't get to a PCR straight away, it's going to perform well in a symptomatic individual. But in an area where there's a lot of COVID, you need to have a reasonable prevalence of COVID for it to perform well. I think the role of it will be specifically in returning to workplaces, returning to school, which is what, which is kind of where it's already sitting in our guidelines. I think that's where it'll continue to sit until or unless, so until we either have something better, so maybe perhaps a better rapid test, or um, if we find out that it doesn't work against new variants. There was some question about whether or not it would work for Omicron. If we find out it doesn't, then we'll be in trouble. I'm going to need to head off now, yep. Bianca. I'm really yep. sorry. Thank
0: you so much. Please join me in thanking Deb. It's really good to see you. and Thank you for all the work you've been doing. Um, take care and we'll uh, hopefully catch up in the new year. Nice to see you all. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, thank you. So we will sign off. and let, Now, does anyone want to answer a question for you? Any word about what's happening with telehealth, a good model for managing initial assessment of potential infectious diseases? Kate or Rowena, Linda, do we know anything about what's happening with telehealth going forward? Go, Linda.
1: Um, a meeting a couple of weeks ago where Luca Detoker was, he said it was pending, a decision was pending. So I think <laughs> we just, we wait. We will it's ask a again. Yeah. we we'll push it again. We'll ask again, yeah.
0: Thank you. And a uh, question about are we reporting people with fake vaccine certificates? Certainly that's a... Yes. Um, I, <laughs> Someone was telling me about a parent that jumped the fence at a primary school after their fake certificate didn't work. I think eyes of the, of the community <laughs> are, um, and I think that was actually in your town, um, Was uh, is going to be interesting going forward as that um, responsibility shifts towards individuals and communities. So there are avenues for reporting this and
2: I'll pop it in the chat in a moment. Um, but there's definitely avenues for reporting anonymously, or um, if you want to report it um, sort of as a medical person, if you're seeing them. Um, but that's absolutely something that people want to hear about. Um, so it's, it's fraud.
0: Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, Thanks for your uh, and for coming throughout the series. Um, It's been an absolute delight to work with you all in this community of practice. I do hope that you felt um, consulted with. I hope you felt that this has been collaborative and that you've had the opportunity to participate. But please do let us know in the evaluation whether there's anything else that we can do to be more responsive and um, collaborative, uh, whether there's other particular things you want to hear about. Um, We're going to be asking you guys, are you prepared to present cases in true echo fashion? Because that'll drive, I guess, this next series. Um, but we wish you all a really safe and happy, um, you know, Christmas season, um, New Year's. Uh, our cases, interestingly, while we're the most vaccinated uh, region in the state, doesn't like cases are going up in our region. So do be safe and as. Um, You know, both Kate, Linda and Deb described, remain ever vigilant, testing, testing, testing and restrictions are important. Um, But I do wish you all a really well end break and I hope you can take that time and look forward to connecting with um, many of you over the few months, maybe face to face. It was nice to meet the Echo team for the first time ever after two years uh, in the flesh. So uh, I hope many of you get a chance to network as well and actually see one another. It'd be nice. Uh, So do let me know if you're in Ocean Grove watch the sharks, hopefully keep the masks on, and we'll have a safe summer. Take care, everyone, and thanks for your contribution. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.